Hey everybody, this is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast where we talk about actually genius ideas. Today is episode number 20 and I'm having on one of my most influential thinkers. His name is Michael Hogue and he studies ways in which we think about nature and how that matters for politics. Okay, so a little bit of a fangirl moment. Actually, this is a bit of a fangirl month for me, bringing on a lot of people who have been really influential to my thinking over the course of the last several years. Today's host, Michael Hogue, sorry, today's guest, Michael Hogue, is a scholar at Meadville Lombard Theological Institute, and I began reading his books, oh, I don't know, eight years ago, about, And the first of his books that I encountered was a book about this field in the world called religious naturalism. And religious naturalism is basically comprised of people, largely scholars, but not exclusively, people who are really interested in ways in which to relate to the world that are religious or spiritual and also naturalistic, which is to say fully supportive of the sciences and wanting to embrace a scientific worldview. And so the work that he did exploring that field and explaining that field to me and teaching me about what religious naturalism has to offer was really important for me. He's since written more books and I have read them and recently published one that I happened to, I read last week that I found brilliant. And so we'll focus on that a little bit today and really dig into these ideas that we have about religion and about nature and how they're so intertwined with with politics. And he's making some really interesting arguments about democracy and what we need to keep our democracy alive. So without further ado, I think I will jump in. I don't have any housekeeping items today. This is the meaning of everything and I adore you as an audience. So thank you so much for listening. All I have to express is gratitude. Um, One thing I will do is I will read to you a little bit about uh, Professor Hogue's background. So you can know a little bit more about where, where he's coming from. Michael Hogue, this is his official bio, joined the Meadville Lombard faculty in September, 2005. He teaches and writes at the intersection of theology, religious ethics, and philosophy of religion. He is particularly influenced by the pragmatist, process, and naturalist lineages of American philosophy of religion, which he refers to as the, and I quote, left wing of American radical theology. As a scholar and teacher, he uses these traditions to explore issues related to religion and the environment, political theology, religion and science, and social ethics. Dr. Hogue has served in leadership capacities in diverse religious, academic, and activist context. He has served on program committees at the Academy of Religion as co-founder and past convener of Oikos and many other different journals. His published articles have appeared in Literature and Theology, Zygon Journal of Religion and Science, Cross Currents, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, the American Journal of Theology and Philosophy, and much more. He is the author of three books, The Tangled Bank, The Promise of Religious Naturalism, and most recently, the book I read last week, American Eminence, Democracy for an Uncertain World. So without further ado, here is Professor Michael Hogue. Hi, Mike. Uh, Welcome to The Meaning of Everything. Hi, Stephanie. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I was just telling everybody how much I have looked forward to having a conversation with you for years. Well, that's really nice to know. I understand yeah, you read my one of my books in a class with Wesley Wildman at Boston University. Yeah, that, that is correct. And so this was a course on religious naturalism. And your book, um, Mike wrote a book called The Promise of Religious Naturalism, was very helpful for me understanding, you know, the lay of the land and um, working comparatively uh, within that field, which was very, uh, very, very helpful. Well, that's good to know. Thanks. Yeah. Did um, did that work? Did that come out of a dissertation, or it, it has yeah. a it has a bit of a dissertation feel to it? Um, I, I no. was curious. Sure. No, it didn't actually. Um, 
my dissertation was a book called The Tangled Bank, and um, it was towards an eco-theological ethics of responsible participation. That sounds very dissertation-y, and yeah. it was. Um, <laughs> the, tangled, the Tangled Bank comes from the last paragraphs of uh, Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, mm-hmm. and um, I use that metaphor in my dissertation as a way to think through um, our human moral entanglements with the natural world and did a comparative kind of thing with a couple of thinkers in that book, uh, James Gustafson and Hans Jonas. And really what I was looking at was um, moral anthropology in those, in, in, in that book. And by that, I mean an account of the human moral condition, human moral capacities that, 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 that explores those capacities in a naturalistic context that is also sensitive to religious and philosophical issues. And both of the thinkers I was looking at in that book um, exemplified that. The Promise of Religious Naturalism was a, a, my, my first book after my dissertation. And it was really, initially, the idea was to write a book on emerging options in religious ethics. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at new types of I was doing research on new types of liberationist ethics, um, uh, what I was calling at the time um, post-traditionalist ethics, um, and these were basically folks working on kind of the progressive edge of religious traditions. Mm. Um, And a third area was religious naturalism. And what happened, and this often happens when you're you're writing, and I'm sure you've experienced this, you go down a rabbit hole and you, you realize there's so much more to something than you thought. And that ends up becoming a new focus. Mm-hmm. So originally the religious naturalism part was just going to be one chapter and it expanded into this whole book. Um, wow. And so the promise of religious naturalism is a book where uh, yeah, I compare several different options in contemporary religious naturalism and put them into the context of um, the moral concerns that I think are important for us and that religious naturalism can can address specifically uh, you know the ecological crisis so that's what the sec- that's what that was about right okay so now in your current work like what if you could put a name to one problem or two problems that you're addressing what is it that you're trying to understand or rectify uh, now with your current work um so i would say that this this the, the most recent book is called american imminence democracy for an uncertain world and um it's really what i consider my first constructive project um, the promise of religious nationalism was still kind of doing this comparison and analysis of varieties of religious naturalism. This one um, is me making a claim about the traditions that have influenced me, um, the American pragmatist process and empirical traditions in uh, American philosophy of religion. And it's, making a case that, um, so I'm identifying this tradition is my formative tradition philosophically and theologically, and I think it has a lot to say to some of our um, major challenges, you know, morally and politically in this moment. And those, I would describe those challenges as um, the aligning of several systemic um, uh, types of reorganization, if not breakdown. And I think that the biggest categories for those systems would be the planetary and the political. So planetary systems in a state of breakdown, um, political systems in a state of breakdown. So the aligning of these kinds of breakdowns creates all types of um, and forms of, of uncertainty. And in response to uncertainty that's as intense and as um, uh, kind of profound as as we experience through the aligning of these systemic breakdowns, that produces a 
a quest for certainty is the way John Dewey puts it. And you see that showing up in the rise of authoritarianism and far-right populist movements around the world. So the problem is basically systemic breakdown producing all these kinds of political reactions that are um, understandable in a certain sense, but counterproductive with respect to advances in democracy, human rights, social and environmental justice, and really addressing our larger problems. So in your book, uh, thank you, that was all very helpful. In your book, you talk about sort of the underlying assumptions or ideas or types of reverence that we have that have contributed to these breakdowns, right? Like what, let's start with nature, right? So what kind of thinking about nature has contributed to the breakdown of our, of our politics and our environment? So um, I think the most fundamental thing is um, the sense of being separate from rather than within nature. So a sense of separation from, um, and you know, Alfred North Whitehead is one of the philosophers that I work on in the book and it's influenced me. And he talks about um, the bifurcation of nature. And essentially it's the problem of how do we understand the human mind um, and mental types of um, behavior, mental uh, qualities in human experience um, in an otherwise seemingly largely physical natural world. Mm -hmm. And so there is a difference we experience, I think, between kind of first person self-awareness um, and mental um, and intellectual cognitive experience and you know the world of nature mm -hmm. and so whitehead's point is that that fundamental sense of bifurcation shows up in in, in lots of other ways dewey talks about it in, in in different terms as a nest of dualisms that have um divided you know certainly divided humans from nature divided our ways of thinking about history and nature from one another nature and culture um, you can see that, that, that dualism or those kinds of binary um, categories shaping human relationships as well. I mean, we think about gender in binary terms. We think about, um, you know, we think about, uh, uh, we kind of live our world in the West specifically through a set of ont ontological oppositions. Mm. Um, these things are fundamentally and, and, different from one another. And I would say that that's the most fundamental issue in the way we, that, that sh that's kind of like the core thing I think that, that, that leads to a, it leads to a, a misunderstanding of and a lack of concern for human impact mm -hmm. in the natural world. The mistake is that it's something separate from us and that it's, static rather than dynamic that it's not you know th th and that we're apart from it rather than understanding ourselves as within nature and therefore affected by whatever it is we're doing so it's that fundamental opposition that um shapes a bunch of other uh challenges that we face i think uh wow okay i have a handful of questions so what is it that makes us think that we're separate? Well, I think part of it is the, um, I think we could say part of it is phenomenological or experiential, how we experience being a human self. I mean, we experience self-awareness. We experience uh, intentionality in, in our way of being in the world. We experience mind. And we don't see or experience mind or intentionality or consciousness out in the more than human world. And so there's this, in at least in the, in the West, now you could say in animist traditions and indigenous traditions, the concept of a person or of self or of animacy is, is broader. But in, in the Western philosophical traditions, there's this real sense of a difference between, you know, human mental, you know, res 
Koji Tans and Raz extends it the way Descartes talked about this extended things that take up space on the one hand and consciousness, things of consciousness on the other. I think part of it's experiential, but then um, you set up, you know, a whole, you, know, you set up uh, human systems with that kind of an assumption built into it. And then you're, you're building in a disregard for nature in the way we think about and perform economy, the way we think about um, what community is about. We think about it strictly in interpersonal and human in rather than in socio-ecological terms. So I think you've got the core experience of, of a contrast, not a contrast, an opposition between consciousness and nature that then ends up sh showing up and is replicated and becomes, you know, problematic in terms of having an impact on the world at larger scales. I like that. Uh, I, I like that a lot. So you're talking about these sort of fundamental oppositions and you even mentioned, mentioned gender, right? So what, what is the alternative, right? And, and why should we, how do we justify, say, taking a view that isn't oppositional, that doesn't think of the world in terms of either or? So uh, it's a great question. So, and this is why I, I think it's important to, you know, as a philosopher and a theologian to kind of see how um, some of what's going on in the world around gender and around, um, you know, divisions between environmentalists and business. I mean, all these different binaries and oppositions that shape and distort, I think, yeah. the way we live in the world come back to some basic kind of metaphysical and even in some, in some ways deeply theological assumptions. So, um, you know, we could think about the varieties of metaphysics, um, both Western and Eastern you know, cosmologies and metaphysics as, as offering several different possibilities. There are dualisms of various kinds yeah. where there, and it typically comes down to, you know, the material and the conscious, um, something like that. There are monisms of various kinds that say, well, everything's physical or natural or everything's uh, mental. So you've got the idealist monist. You've also got the physicalist monist. And then you have um, what I think are, um, uh, I mean, to me, the more compelling options and also I think the more, um, the more complicated ones are varieties of integral monism. <laughs> okay. Uh, where, where you've got the, the most fundamental things that exist are phenomena that exhibit both mental and physical aspects. Mm. So this is what, for me, Whitehead is a primary source on this. And he, he the way I describe his, um, his idea of like the fundamental things that exist in the world, he refers to as actual entities um, or, act, or, or actual occasions at different times. And they have a, a mental and a physical aspect to them. So also for Whitehead does the concept of God. God has both of these aspects. So Whitehead's metaphysics is a, um, it's like uh, a fractal metaphysics in a sense that you see patterns repeated over and over again from, from you know, the subatomic mm -hmm. to the intergalactic um, and to the, the, the theological, to the personal. And um, so it's not that there are, um, different kinds of things in the world fundamentally, but that every kind of thing that there is has multiple aspects to them. So the different, and, and then when you, if that's your most basic picture of the world, then you can start to think about differences, mm. not in terms of oppositions, but in terms of contrasts. And the possibility is that those contrasts can be mutually enriching. Um, and experientially deepening contrasts rather than oppositions that need to be, you know, in, embattled, right? Mm -hmm. So, the, and this is the difference I think that that kind of a metaphysics creates. It creates a potential for thinking through and living in our world as a world of differences in contrast that can be mutually enriching and enhancing 
rather than a world of oppositions that are threatening and in battle. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. No one has tried to, and it might be a long time before somebody tries again to explain Whitehead's metaphysics in 30 seconds on my podcast. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think it was lucid, which is really nice. Um, and is there not also something about human beings where it's just like, it's easier to simplify things, right? Like thinking through things in terms of being mutually enriching contrasts right, or variations in degree, takes, it takes a little bit more effort and complexity in our thinking. And, and I, think, I think it takes a lot to, to get to that sort of point. Do you, see, do you see us as being able to integrate this kind of richer, more complex thinking on a, on a broader scale? So a um, couple, of, couple of ideas about that. So um, Two, uh, two, two initial responses. Um, Whitehead talks about this, the, the most fundamental fallacy in human thinking is the, the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. And it's, it's um, essentially that we, we, we think, we project into the world categories and concepts that um, are rooted in a primarily visual encounter with the world. Um, so if we think about empiricisms as philosophies of knowledge that are rooted in an appeal to experience. You say sensory empiricisms are the idea that, and this is classical empiricism, we can only know what we directly experience through the senses. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Whitehead is an example of, and William James is an example of this, and so is John Dewey, of a radical empiricist who will say, argue that all that we know, um, we know through experience, um, and sensory experience is in some ways more fundamental than cognitive experience or the experience of consciousness but beneath sensory experience there's affective experience there's felt experience and that's harder to i mean that's that's preconceptual experience the problem is we live through the world kind of in this kind of middle space of the sensory mm-hmm. and and the sensory ends up um kind of becoming the basis for the way we conceptualize and categorize the world. And we're never, so our thought, our thinking never rises to the complexity and the fluidity Mm. of what actually exists. It's always compartmentalizing and categorizing and dividing. Right. Um, And, and, and I think, so there's that tendency in human thinking and you could say that's, that's just built into the way humans, the human brain works. You could also, but, but then you can also say that then you develop language systems and philosophical systems that reinforce those tendencies. So there's, there's that. I also think that um, John Dewey has a lot of insight on this because he ties in a quest for certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he interprets a quest for certainty as in some ways related to a quest for security. Yeah. So, the, so we want to be, we want to have certain objective, absolute knowledge because somehow that that helps us to feel more secure in the world. So, in response to the question, how can we live and think in a way that rises to the complexity of a world of contrast rather than oppositions? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are multiple ways to address that question. You could think about, well, how do we need to understand? You know, rethink the way the mind works, the way the brain works, um, and, and develop and teach different, um, different ways of thinking about human thinking and cognition and teach that and, and create, you know, curricula and approaches to learning that cultivate and respond to the effective depths of experience, um, and, and don't favor necessarily Cognitive or sensory, right? But, but think at the multiple levels. That would be one way of approaching the question. Um, rethink, you know, changing the way we teach and learn in response to the way we understand the real complexity of the brain. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, I think that there are other traditions around the world historically too that are much more attuned to a world of contrast rather than oppositions to the idea, you know, to, to Whitehead's um, pan experientialism, the idea that experience is not just conscious experience. It's not just human, but that it goes all the way down. I think a lot of animists and indigenous traditions exhibit a sensitivity to that, that we have as modern Westerners and postmodern Westerners, a lot to learn from. So it's partly about learning not only that our brain works differently than we thought, but other cultural systems have a lot uh, for us to learn from as well. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So just to clarify, and maybe we can unpack this a bit because it's interesting. When you say consciousness goes all the way down, I understand because I have read Whitehead. I understand what you mean about concrescence and the like, but I'm curious for people listening. Um, does that mean, for example, that there is consciousness or some degree of consciousness in a rock? Right? What, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, for Whitehead, it's not that consciousness goes all the way down. It's that experience goes all the way down. Hmm. But we tend, as, as, as human beings, we tend to think of experience in the terms of conscious experience, right. intentional consciousness, um, you know, representational consciousness. Um, but for Whitehead, experience is deeper than that. Um, and the most fundamental things that exist, uh, or you know, if you go all the way down to what's most fundamental, he calls that an actual occasion or entity, and that is a subject of experience. It's not conscious, but it does have a kind of a, a mental and physical aspect to it. Hmm. So what, what does that mean? Does that mean that rocks are thinking things? Um, uh, not, not, not in the way that we think about thinking and cognition. So um, he, something like, okay, so, so he, he does talk, he, it's a fractal cosmology or metaphysics, as I said. So you see these patterns showing up. Mm-hmm. The most fundamental things are occasions or entities, but you also have varieties of, of social systems. And a, a social system or a society could be, personally ordered or conformally ordered. A rock is a conformally ordered society of occasions. It's not one thing, it's a bunch of other things that are conformally um, uh, related to one another. Hmm. They're not conscious, but it's already a multiplicity. um, And those things are combined or integrated because there's some kind of a resonance between and among them. It's not conscious resonance, but there's something that that holds it together. Um, a personally ordered society, on the other hand, is is a is a is a collective or a multiplicity that's not just formally or spatially contiguous in relationship, but has a you know a a a, a common intention or aim that binds them together. So, you know, an organ in the human body is an example of a personally ordered system. Um, there's a purpose or a function that holds the pieces together, right? Um, so no, it doesn't mean that rocks are conscious, but it does mean that there's a lot more uh, complexity to a rock, for instance, than we tend to, in our everyday lives, think about. Okay, that that is uh, that's really helpful. So to sort of draw that back to our modern crisis. Um, Are there things, you know, we've been talking about metaphysics a lot, right? The way that we view the world. Are there things about the Western religious traditions that we've inherited specifically that promote these kinds of, we might say, oversimplified or dualistic ways of thinking? Yeah, I, and I think, and this is what I, I tried to show in, um, in American imminence is that the core problem in, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, you could say, I, I mean, I, I really think that the, the, the fundamental problem is a concept of the divine that is omnistructured. Um, so omnipotent, 
omniscient, all-knowing, it sets up this idea about power and value mm. that is um, that we then idealize in in lots of other lots of different ways. That so that you've got this uh, concept of a creator God who is, you know, ontologically distinct from the rest of creation. And so there's an opposition. Even if there's a creative relationship, this God brings this creation into existence. Mm -hmm. You know, the premise of classical theism and much of popular theism, I think, is that there's a, there's a fundamental difference, right, between creation and creator. So you've got this opposition that's built into the way so many folks think about the sacred that then shows up in all kinds of other, you know, of human and social systems. So you, your I, the highest you can, the highest that, that, that we think that the theists, traditional theists think of the highest thing is God. God is unitary one. Um, all powerful and anything else that has powers in a sense kind of in a competition with this one. And so you've got unitary and op so this divine being is unitary and oppositional by, by nature. And that's, that's the concept of the, the, inter you know, the idealized integration of power and value that then shapes the way we think about power and value in all kinds of other circumstances. Hmm. So, I mean, if we think about, you know, um, if we think about uh, everything becomes zero sum, right? You think about what the heck's happening in the UK with Brexit and the hmm. way people are thinking about that. If you think about American, you know, in the, in the United States, our, our, our parties and our congressional dysfunctions, I mean, it's zero sum stuff. And I, my sense is that those ideas about power and value can, are traceable back to a concept of God. And so, um, to me, that's what the work of political theology is, is it's helping to map and analyze and kind of bring to surface, um, you know, uh, the way that concept of God shows up in other ways, the way we think about the nation, the way we think about a race, the way we think about class, the way we think about political parties, the way we think about, you know, the true, the good, and the beautiful. So when you're talking about the nation and a race and a class and what have you, are you saying that the problem is we think the power source is unitary, like there is a best option or a most powerful option and we must align ourselves with or revere that? Like how does this, you said this is the work of political theology, so then what would we see? How does this idea of God actually make us um, think particular ways about race or class or what have you? Well, I think that um, this idea of God as unitary and oppositional which is a way of interpreting, for me, the, a way of naming, I should say, the omnistructured God of classical theism, mm -hmm. which also shows up, I think, in a lot of popular theism, um, meaning assumptions about the divine that are in place at a lot of churches, for example, a lot of Christian churches. Mm -hmm. um, that, that unitary oppositional ideal then is a, is a kind of supremacist ideal, right? It's like this God is supreme because of these features or aspects or qualities is above and beyond all other possible concepts of the sacred. Um, monotheism is a kind of theistic supremacy. And that idea, I'm saying, is replicated in lots of other human, you know, relationships. So we think about, uh, so, I mean, there's, you know, that there's a superior race, that there's a superior way of being a sexual creature, right? That there's, um, uh, that, that, that job creators are better than, you know, are superior to workers or for fo folks who have been, you know, you know, 
are kind of stuck on the bottom rungs of the ladder, the ladder of um, you know meritocracy or whatever. So I think it ends up setting up this very hierarchical and supremacist way of of thinking mm. and being in relationship. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I like that. That's very that's very smart. I so what then? You know what 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 is the alternative then? You know, um, yeah, what's the alternative? Well, so this is what. Um, the constructive part of my of my book, American Imminence, is trying to articulate is, is to say that there is an alternative tradition. I call it the dissenting tradition, mm-hmm. and it's, um, uh, of of theology sure. in in um, and I'm talking specifically about American traditions, um, and I call it an immanentalist tradition. So the sacred is not the divine or like, I still think God can be a useful symbol for this. Um, but it's a distributed understanding of God rather than a concentrated understanding. It's not a monopolistic concept of God, but it's God, uh, you know, a concept of God or the sacred or the divine as distributed and imminent within the world. Mm. Um, and that sets up a whole different way of thinking about what, I mean, you know, our concepts of the sacred shape the way we think about power and value, among other things. Mm-hmm. Right? But if our if our if our concept of ultimacy, to use Paul Tillich's kind of um, categories here, is imminent rather than ontologically transcendent, right. is is within the world, the world being the universe, nature, experience, um, you know. And it's a part of everything. Then I think we set up a way of thinking about power and value that's not oppositional or unitary, but but this distributed and complementary. Mm. Um, and and so we, I think it sets up a whole different logic for understanding difference, for understanding community, for understanding, um, you know, the human place in. Uh, planetary systems. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't prescribe ideas about right, wrong, and justice, but it sets up a different logic for thinking about mm. basic things. So the immanentalist tradition in in American philosophy of religion is one alternative to what I was describing as a problematic tradition there are other there are other you know possibilities um i've already mentioned indigenous and animist traditions um that i'm not an expert on but i think that they have some similar uh ideas about imminence and complementarity and a kind of pan experientialism or pan psychism um that is relevant mm. for rethinking the divine and the sacred in our time. And why is this better to bring this full circle? Why is this a better system or way of thinking about things for addressing our political and environmental crises? Well, so I think for, there are a couple ways to answer this question. It's, it's, so as a, as a religious, somebody that kind of self identifies as religious naturalist, I would say, it's better for a couple of reasons, at least, right? One is that I think that it's um, it's a naturalistic concept of the sacred. In other words, um, you know, the idea that there is a supreme being with consciousness uh, that is behind everything that exists, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an impossibility for a naturalist. The idea that there's consciousness or intentionality that's, that's disembodied or discarnate, that's something that a naturalist doesn't have access to. Um, the, instead, the idea that there are aspects of nature, nature being everything, <laughs> nature naturing, nature natured, <laughs> doing what nature does, um, uh, that there are aspects of nature naturing that are sacred and that we can revere, that's something that a naturalist can say I have access to. That's not to say that there are spirits out there 
with consciousness running around through the world, but it's to say that aspects of what nature already is and is doing provoke it, you know, provoke um, a response that I think is useful to name as religious. Mm. It, so, so one one way I think that you know, one part of the answer to the question is why, of why is this better is because I would say it's it's to me it's a more um, intellectually and, and I would say even spiritually accessible idea. Mm. Um, one for which I think the sciences are provide a, a kind of access point into it. Not that they exhaust what is knowable, but, but that they, you know, it's compatible, I think, with some of, you know, the sciences. So the other reason, and, and this is where the pragmatist in me comes out, the other reason I think that it's a better option is because I said, like, it sets up a different logic of relationship mm-hmm. rather than a supremacist one, rather than, a unitarian oppositional one, rather than zero sum, you know, negotiations of power and value, you have a distributed model of power. You have an understanding of value as emergent out of complex processes, rather than antecedent in a supreme being, mm-hmm. um, and that 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 that, sh- that ends up providing a kind of foundation for thinking about, you know coalitions and collaborations and co-creative you know ventures of various kinds so it sets up that 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 idea of ultimacy sets up a different logic for moving through the world Mm. that i think has a lot of pragmatic uh value and utility And you mean here pragmatic kind of in both senses, right? In the philosophical sense and also in the sense that people usually mean colloquially as in it's useful. Yes, I think it's useful. And I, I certainly mean it in the philosophical sense. And this is, these are ideas that come out of an American pragmatist uh, philosophical tradition. But useful, and, and this is what the subtitle of American Immanence is Democracy for an Uncertain World. Because I think we're facing a number of globally scaled challenges that require new types of collaborations and coalitions, mm. right? And if we can, it, and, and if we have a, a theological vision that frames and contextualizes and even gives energy to that work, I think that's a really useful thing. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, we've got a bunch of, you know, multi-system, breakdowns, planetary and political, to name some big types of systems. Um, And these are producing all kinds of complicated problems and challenges that require the best of our collective imaginations and collective problem solving. um, And what sort of of a political framework is conducive to that? And I would say, you know, a radically democratic one. Um, and a radically democratic kind of political, um, the idea of a, of a, of a, of a radically democratic uh, approach to these problems is, I think, supported and framed very well by an immanentalist understanding of the sacred. Uh, so these new types of collaborations and coalitions, like what, what do they what hypothetically might one look like? You know, how, how does this democracy work? So, so I think that um, there are some, some, some examples of this. Mm-hmm. Paul, Paul Hawken is one of the entrepreneurs behind the Smith and Hawken company, which was, I think it was actually a gardening tool, kind of household goods okay. business of some kind. And, and he's very ecologically minded, Paul Hawken. He wrote a book called Blessed Unrest. Mm-hmm. And it was a few years ago. And he spent you know, time giving talks and working with communities all around the world. And he says, and this is just anecdotally, but, that, but he thinks that we're living through one of, the, one of history's largest ever people's movements. Mm-hmm. And these are small grassroots scaled communities you know, sometimes faith-based, other times just, you know, whatever, just grassroots communities 
you know, working on social, environmental, um, economic, and racial justice issues. Mm-hmm. And he sees it happening everywhere. But it's, it's, it's not, when, when I think about the world and what's shaping the world, that's not what I'm thinking about. We see what's in the headlines. We see spectacle. Mm-hmm. We see, um, so we think about um, the highest levels of our political and economic system and not what's happening in a distributed way. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because of the way news and media work and whatnot. But my point is that there's a lot of, of innovation around organizing communities and working for justice that already exists in the world. It's just distributed. It doesn't really have a center to it. You know, there's not an ideological vanguard that's presenting this particular mm. you know, vision for the way things ought to be. And so we don't notice it. So part of the work of folks who are committed to shaping a more just and equitable world along these lines is to bring some visibility to this. So examples would include, I think, um, the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, um, the three, the three, uh, the three fifty movement, the climate justice movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rise of co- the commons movement and commoning is kind of taking, you know, the, the idea of um, transition communities, which really are, are especially big, I think, in the UK. Um, these are all examples of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And what I'm working on now in my teaching and writing is, is, is really about developing some more practical ideas about what it means to bring some of this to life. Um, I can say more about that, or we could move to another question. Um, well, we're actually kind of almost coming up on time. This is flying by. Why don't you go ahead and, and flesh out what you were talking about there? I think that's really cool. Okay, so briefly, the American imminence ends with this idea of resilient democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the concept for it is that um, you know, that the distributed nature of the people's movement that Paul Hawkins Hawkins talks about Mm -hmm. is one of the strengths of that movement because in, in any system there needs to be some redundancy and some dispersal of agency and creativity. Mm -hmm. But if it's not integrated, if it's not connected, then it can dissolve. It just becomes a bunch of disparate things that are happening. Resilient democracy is about integrating, um, the disparate, emergent, innovative, grassroots kind of social justice and environmental justice movements. That's where that book ends, um, with that kind of articulating that vision. Now, what I've begun to think about, what are some roles that different organizations and communities and people can play in doing this work? And I'm thinking at the moment that there are several different types of roles. Um, there, there's, uh, there are there are agitators who kind of call into question existing systems or status quo that kind of shake things up a little bit. And you can do that. You don't have to be a militant to be an agitator, but you know, it's not necessarily, you know, in fact, I would say that an oppositional model can, can be problematic, but there need to be agitators. There need to be innovators or incubators, people who are coming up with new ideas about how to do things there need to be connectors or weavers who are bringing the disparate innovations together. Um, and there need to be amplifiers who increase visibility and raise awareness. So, and I, and I think you, you could think about, you know, examples of um, people who kind of exemplify each of those tendencies, but you don't have to think about it just at an individual level. I think you would think about it at the level of organizations and communities as well. But I would say that any kind of a resilient system and a resilient democratic system needs folks and organizations playing all of those roles. I really appreciate something I've been thinking about for the last few minutes. I really appreciate the really intensive philosophical rigor and depth that underlies 
these really nice practical ideas that you have about how we can, you know, make any, some sort of progress as a society. I think I, I loved the way you were talking about these agitators and um, amplifiers and, and that sort of thing. And I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And it's so common for academics to have some critiques, you know, or have some metaphysical ideas, but it's very rare to sort of see that start to live, start to live in the real world. But I feel like, you know, you're not actually just accurately depicting the world, but talking prescriptively about something really uh, cool that that could happen. You know, like this this vision feels actually actionable, I suppose is what I'm saying. Uh, I think that that's really important. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's an important, I mean, it, if, if the world is the way I think it is, then um, yeah, just sitting on the sidelines as an academic or an intellectual isn't really very responsible. Mm-hmm. So not that I'm out there as the activist shaking things up, but I, I mean, I do think there's a responsibility for intellectuals to, to come up with some actionable, operationalizable yeah. ideas, right? Yeah, and you sort of pass the ideas around, and that's kind of what I am trying to do here with this project, right, is find, is act as a, as a linkage between ideas that are, I think, important and powerful and uh, people who wouldn't otherwise hear them, you know? And so, yeah, yeah so I, I will do what I can uh, to, to get this and other, you know, other really interesting ideas out there. Uh, that is a promise. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I'm glad you said that because what you're doing with the blogs and the, and, the, um, and the podcast is a perfect example of connecting and amplifying, mm-hmm. right? You're connecting audiences to some new ideas and thinkers. You're amplifying questions that you have, that others may have, and also the ideas and projects of people that you invite onto your show. So, yeah, I think it's a great example of what I'm talking about here. Well, thank you for validating my work. I appreciate that. Great. Yeah. You're my mom. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a, this is a good point to say bye. I will provide links uh, to Mike's books in, in the show notes. They are academic, but accessible and actually really beautiful reads. I took out a bunch of quotes and wrote them down because they're, they're very lovely. So Um, Thank you again, Mike, for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I will talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. 